Good morning, church family. Great to see you here. And welcome to all our visitors in the room. It's been exciting to see what God has been doing at West Cabarrus Church. You saw at the beginning of service today the highlights from our youth retreat. Great to see our students kind of get some time away and get to hear from God's word and be challenged and encouraged there. Uh, and then get to hear from one of our missionaries that we support and how we're helping to plant churches in unreached areas around the world. Uh, that's uh, because of your faithfulness to, to pray and to give and even to go on some of these trips. Uh, but then also excited about what's to come. Uh, next Sunday, our ladies have their retreat, which is the largest women's retreat we've had uh, numerically. So we're excited about the, what the ladies will be challenged with and learn from the Word of God. So God's been doing a lot, and uh, we just want to be faithful to thank Him for those things. Well, today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. So you're going to need a copy of God's Word. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the Welcome Center that are free. We'd love to give that to you as a gift so you can read God's Word and treasure it in your heart and allow it to lead and guide you in the ways of the Lord. And so we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is a great passage, a rich passage of several things that we'll walk through this morning. But let's look together. You follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. It says, Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time in the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, though judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you now confessing that you are our maker and our sustainer. You're the shepherd over us and our caretaker Lord, you are the author of our life and the author of truth. So, Lord, we thank you for the Bible and confess that without your spirit, we will not be able to understand it. Without your spirit, our hearts will not be inclined to lean towards it, but actually inclined to lean away from it. Lord, without your spirit, we will not have the courage to understand and apply your word, nor even have the entrance to try so we ask that you would give us your spirit today. So as we read and as we talk about your word, Lord, would you pique our curiosity? And Lord, would you awaken our souls to your truth? 
Now let me give you just a little bit of time of silence to pray and to ask that God would just open up your eyes and your mind to be able to see wondrous things from God's word. Would you pray that to him in this time of silence now? Let me give you a little bit of time also to pray for someone else. As God brings somebody into your mind that needs to hear uh, the word of God, God uh, would you pray that God would open up their eyes that they would be able to see and respond well to God's word? Pray for them now. Lord Jesus, your word is a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. So show us the way today and help us to walk in it, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I entitled this message today, uh, Fighting for Hope. You see it on the screen. Fighting for Hope. And the reason why I chose that title for this passage is because in verse 1, Peter says to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. To arm yourself. This term, arm yourself in the Greek, is, is actually a military term. It's a resistance term that you would actually fight in war against something, that you would arm yourself. Now, this passage does not say to arm yourself with weapons. No, this passage says arm yourself with a certain way of thinking. That we would look at the life of Christ and his sufferings, and as we look at that, as we look at the mind of Christ, it would shape the way that we think, which if you know the book of First Peter as a whole, if you've been here tracking with us, this makes a whole lot of sense why Peter would make this shift in chapter 4. See, he starts, and in chapter 1, he talks about everything that Christ has done for those who come to him. Talks about how Christ has lived the sinless life and died the sinner's death. And then he rose from the grave in, in order to adopt us into his family. That if we would confess our sins, he would wash us clean. It's an invitation from God. You see all these beautiful things in the first few chapters, or the first couple chapters of First Peter. And then after he's talked about what Christ has done for you, how he has saved you and redeemed you through his grace, it's a gift that's given to you, then Peter says, now look at the life of Christ. And model the life of Christ. How he lived, how he suffered, you do the same thing. Not in order to earn your salvation, but because it's been a gift that's given to you, now I'll look at his life and I'll model it. But now here in chapter 4, he shifts and he's like, yes, Christ has done these things for us. Yes, you've modeled his external actions, but now model his internal actions. Let the mind of Christ be your mind. So don't just reflect his life, but model his mind. He says, arm yourself with the knowledge that Christ has suffered for you. Now this is important, arm yourself. It's not just believe it, and it's not just know it, but arm yourself with these truths, with these realities from God's word. It's a wonderful word. There's a lot more to the Christian life than just knowing facts, than even just believing something. It is arming yourself with these things. Now, uh, a few years ago when we lived in Raleigh, there was uh, a couple that was in our cul-de-sac. I was talking to Brian one day, and he was telling us that they had lived not too far from where we had lived in an apartment complex. 
And he told me this one day, this crazy story where he said, I was home and I heard this loud like bam on the front door. He was like, what was that? And then he hears another bang on the front door. He's like, what? And so he gets up from the couch and he goes and he looks through the peephole, the front door, and there's two men that are out there with crowbars and they're banging it against the door and trying to pry the door open. And about the time he realizes what they're doing, they, they breach the door and they're prying it open and he's there with his shoulder against the door pushing to keep them out. All this is going on, he's like, what am I going to do? And in his mind he's thinking, man, I have something to defend myself, but it's, it's in the bedroom. And I'm here at the front door, like pushed up against it as these guys try to break in. And I, I can't remember the exact details, whether it was somebody that showed up or something kind of spooked them. But these people ended up running away and, and Brian was okay. But the reason I share that story with you today is because for us as believers, I think what happens is a lot of times we know these different theological truths and they're kind of in the back of our mind. Maybe in kind of like the bedroom of our mind. And yet, we're dealing with sins and struggles and battles that are breaking through the front door of our life, and we're there kind of pressing against them, and we need those truths to arm ourselves to fight against it, but they're way in the back in the bedroom of our mind. Let me give you an example of this. Some of you, some of you know the, the truth of God's Word, that God loves you, and that His approval is the the, the real approval, the approval that your heart longs for and needs more than anything. You know these theological truths. You even know certain passages for God so loved the world. You've even taken out the world and you put your name in there, right? You realize that God loves you. And yet, we tuck that truth deep in the back of our mind. And at the front door, what's breaking in is people that are maybe looking down on you or judging you or not accepting you. And you spin into despair and sorrow, or you lash out in anger against them. Neither of those are what God's word calls us to do. Oh, that we would take that truth that God loves us and arm ourselves with it to fight against those things. Another example is that the front door of our life, anxiety and worry is breaking in. And we know the truth that God is sovereign and he's powerful and he's all wise. We know all of these things and they're tucked in the back of our mind, but we haven't armed ourselves with them. So there we are wrestling with our anxieties without being armed with the truth that God has given us. And so Peter challenges us, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Arm yourself. And so what I want to do as we walk through this passage today I want to give you three reasons to arm yourself, and then the truths that we need to keep near us to fight for this hope. Okay? So three reasons to arm yourself, and then I'll weave the truths in that we need to keep near us in order to fight for this hope. So first, let's arm ourselves to slay sin. Let's arm ourselves to slay sin. You find this in the first three verses. But he says in verse 1, as we think about Christ and as our minds are changed, we cease from sin. Now, don't be confused or misinformed. This is not saying, when Peter writes this, that we can cease from sinning and we'll never sin again. There's multiple passages in Scripture that say, if you think in your life right now, man, there's no sin in my life. Gosh, yeah, I must be a sinless person. There's nothing going on. The Bible says you deceive yourself. That there are sins that are creeping around, that are crouching at your door, that you're struggling with, that you don't even realize. 
And so this is not saying that you can be a sinless person. What it's saying is we need to fight to have nothing to do with sin. That we need to hate sin because it hates Christ. That Christ would be more attractive to us than any sin in the world. That's what it's saying when it talks about we are ceasing from sin. We don't live in these human passions of the past. No, we live for the will of God now. Now, how do we do that? How do we kind of change our minds? How do we arm our hearts? We need perspective. We need perspective. We need to have the mind that Jesus had. How did Jesus think? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. For believers, fix your eyes on Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross. Now this is pain, this is suffering, and there was even a temptation for him not to go to the cross for us. So how and why did he endure this pain and this suffering? How did he endure the cross? He tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus resist these temptations? How did he slay the sins? By keeping his eyes fixed on the greater glory. By fixing his eyes on the joy that would last forever and ever. Now, Peter is not blind to the reality of the pleasures of this world. He's not writing a letter ignorant of the temptations that we have as believers in our life. And let's be clear, Peter is writing this letter to believers, to the church. And he's calling out the temptations in their life in verse 3. This is to the church. And look at the list that he gives. Sensualities and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties. You didn't think you were coming today to hear a service that would mention those things, right? But the temptation for us is we think the early church, oh, these are perfect holy people, right? People who say a, a, a wordy dirt and they need to go to God and, hmm, forgive me, like wash me, polish me up again. No, Peter's like, no, there are real, real temptations and real pleasures that are out here in this world. And he lists them for us. These are temptations that maybe even you have struggled with or struggle with today. This is for believers. He's writing this. These are real temptations. Why? Because these are real people. God knows the temptations that are in our heart. He knows the sins that we fight for. And he says, slay them. War against them. Arm yourself so you don't give in to these things. And, and many of the things that he lists here are, are around sexual sins. And he gives them multiple different names. And the reason why I think uh, God's word in multiple places highlights different angles of, of sexual sins is because he knows, God knows, the temptation in the human heart to do theological gymnastics to justify our sexual sins. So I don't think God goes broad to talk about sexual sins so that we can justify our sins, nor does he go narrow just so we can just say, well, it's just those and not those. He hits both, broad and narrow. Anything outside of marriage, he says, no. Guard yourself from those things. Arm yourself so you don't give in to those temptations. So let me just be blunt for a second. Kind of flesh these things out as he talks about these different things, sensualities and passions and, and orgies. When, when it, another way to say it is this. Slay the sin of porn in your life. Fight against it. Don't let your eyes rule your soul. Slay the sin of selfishness in your heart. 
that you would want to use other people's bodies for your own pleasure instead of for the glory of God. And he even throws in orgies in there, which I think is very interesting but very intentional because it doesn't matter if it's consensual or not. He's saying resist those things. It doesn't matter if the other person is like, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. No. He says flee those things. Flee those things. Now, after he gives this list of all these sexual temptations and sins that we have in our life, in between there, what he does is he weaves things in that we use to numb our conscience in order to do these things. Now, many people throughout human history have taken a number of different substances to numb our conscience in order to do things that we would never have done sober. Some of you, your biggest regrets in your life are because you numbed your conscience. God has given us a conscience that we would flee from these things that would take our life. Some of the things that you thought would be life-enhancing are the very things that stole your soul. And so Peter just calls it. He just lists it. And he says, avoid these things. We used to live this way. Don't live this way anymore. Now, for some of you that maybe are new to church or new to this place, and you read this passage, as I read it this morning, and you're sitting here thinking, oh, great. So we're going to talk about all these lists of things and how God is just a killjoy. That's, that's what you thought. You think that God is a killjoy because he says, don't do these things right here. And that's one of the biggest lies that you could ever believe. That God is a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. Pause. Use your brain a little bit. Arm yourself, right? Logically think through these things. God is not a killjoy. What was the first miracle that Jesus ever did? Water into wine at a wedding. Jesus was four parties, right? It wasn't a bad thing. Think about it. Logically, again, God is not anti-sex. He created the equipment that we use for sex. Let that settle in. It's God's idea. It wasn't yours. God is not anti-fun. God is anti-sin. He's anti-sin. Because you know what sin is? Sin is a parasite that clings to something good and then distorts it. And so when God lists these things in here, he's not a killjoy. No, he's trying to give us full joy. He's trying to help us to enjoy and free us from these sins. These things that we think will give us life are actually chains. They're actually binding us. And God came to liberate us. Sin always takes more than it gives. Always. You never think you're going to end up the place you are, but it's because sin leads you there and takes and takes and takes. So two points of application, two points to think through as we consider slaying our sin is first, come to Jesus to find forgiveness and refreshment. Jesus slayed sin so that you and I could walk in newness of life. He went to the cross in order to break those chains that hold us so tightly. If you have a past where you have struggled with these things or other things the Bible mentions and calls sin, do not let them define you. Don't let your past sins define your present and your future. Your past is just that. It's the past if your present is in Christ. Christ offers us forgiveness he offers us a greater joy, even though we've rebelled and run against him. So come to him. He's there with wide open arms to welcome you. Come to him and find forgiveness and refreshment. 
For us that are believers, application I would have for this is let us not coddle what Christ came to kill. Let us not coddle the sins which Christ came to kill. And there's a few verses in Psalm 119 that come to my mind often that I think through that gives us a kind of step-by-step process of how we work to slay sin very practically for a believer. Look at Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. You'll see it on the screen here. But it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's a great question. How do we resist sin? How do we slay sin? How do we arm ourselves to war against these things? God's Word is going to tell us. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but let me just say, highlight a few things in here. First, if you want to guard your heart, you want to guard your life, you want to resist sin, then hide God's word in your heart. Church, that means that we have to read it. We have to know it, and not just know it in the backs of our mind, the bedroom of our mind. No, we bring it to the forefront of our mind, that we would memorize it and think on it. Are you reading the word regularly? And not just reading it and saying, that's a good fact. But God, who do I need to see you as as I read the pages of Scripture? And how does that truth change my life? Like, God, what do you want me to do with that today? God, what do you want me to do with that, tri- that truth this week? How do I arm myself in such a way that I, when I walk out into a harsh, broken, sinful world, I can resist those temptations? God, what do you want me to do with this truth in my life this week? And once again, the Bible is so raw and real, I love it. He says in here, with my whole heart, I seek you. He's saying, I'm a believer, I'm following you, and then he even prays, God, let me not wander from your commandments. See, you can say, I love Jesus, I want to follow him, but just like we sang, our hearts are so prone to wonder, our hearts are so prone to leave God, and so yes, we're seeking you, but Lord, help me not to wander away from your commandments. Are you seeking God's word and hiding it in your heart? Are you praying with the reality of your, you realizing your temptation to, to run from God, to, to wander away from him? Oh, let's arm ourselves in this way so we'll, we, we will war well and slay sin. May we not continue these things. Let us slay everything in our life that Christ came to die for, that Christ came to suffer for. Let us slay sin. Now, as we do this, as we slay sin in our life and we live holy lives, it will lead others to be confused, wondering why you've changed and why you're living that way. And sadly... This confusion will lead, oftentimes, to slander, which is the next point. Arm yourself to endure slander. In verse 4, it tells us that, that when the world looks at our life and we resist sin and we slay sin and we follow Christ and love him, then they're going to be surprised when you don't live how you used to live. They're going to be surprised when you don't join in in the flood of debauchery, is what it says in 1 Peter. And we talked about this last week, but for believers, some of the greatest ways that you will be mocked is not in things that you have done, but things that you have not done. The way you sustain from certain things is going to lead people to slander you or malign you, it tells us in verse 4. And some of us can really relate to this. 
if we just were more honest with our hearts, this is some of the reason why we're scared to mention Jesus and our love for him in our school or in our workplace or on our sports team because we know that people will start to judge us and we fear their judgment. So what truth do we arm ourselves with in order to endure slander? Well, it tells us in verse 5 that we don't fear their judgment. We realize that there's a bigger judgment than theirs, that there's a judgment coming. And it tells us in verse 5 that everyone, both living and dead, will stand before God and there will be a judgment. Living and dead, that includes everybody. So it's not just well, those that believed in God, they're going to stand before Jesus one day and they will be judged on how they live their life. No, everybody. And so we look at people who would malign us now and slander us and we realize that one day they will be judged and our heart goes out to them and we want to pray for them and we want to love them and it will help us endure their slander and them maligning us because we know there's a greater judgment. Although we would arm ourselves with this truth. The truth that the end of things is at hand. That's what verse 7 says. Did you catch that? The end of things is at hand. What does that mean? Is that history is going somewhere. History has a purpose and a plan. Time is not just this reciprocal thing that continues to rotate over and over again. No, it has a destination. God has created this world and us with a purpose. In the very beginning, God created the world. And we, instead of following God's will and God's way, we fell and sinned and said, no, we want to do things our will and our way. That's what sin is. We rebel against God. And so God in his goodness and his kindness, what he does is he, he comes and he gives a promise. That there's a hero that's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the enemy and he's going to wipe away sin. And then God looks at his people over time and he gives them a law, follow these things, I've redeemed you, I've, I've rescued you, now live these things out. And then he gives them a book called the Psalms on how to worship and praise him. And then he gives a book on Proverbs on how to live wisely in this broken world. And yet the people still look and they say, no God, we don't want that. We see the way you have designed for us to live, but we want to live this way. We see how you've created us, no, we want to live how we want to create us. We want to create ourselves. So God in his grace and his compassion sends prophets, multiple prophets to, to, to speak and to preach and to talk about, hey guys, listen up, there's a merciful God who wants to save you from your sins, but if you don't repent, then judgment's coming. But there's hope. There's hope that a hero is going to come. That promise that God made, he will fulfill. And they're telling the people that over and over again, and then you get to the New Testament where that hero shows up on the scene, the king comes. You got four gospels that talk about the life of Christ and what he did, how he came and he died for us to rescue us and to save us and went to the grave but defeated death. And then he ascended to heaven. But before he ascends, he says, I'm coming back again. When I come back, this time it's not going to be in a baby in a manger. It's going to be as a warrior on a horse coming to slay. And so tell the people, tell the people of the, the time that is near, that they can believe and trust in Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, Peter's writing right here, talking about the end of all things in verse 11. 
and to keep the end in mind. But wasn't this written like 2,000 years ago? Like, really, is the, is the end, end near? And you, you're maybe sitting here thinking, well, if it's been that long, then the end is probably nowhere in sight. But I would just warn you, we talked about it a little bit last week, but that's what the people said in the day of Noah. As Noah preached, he said, hey, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, and they mocked him, and they slandered him, and he continued to preach, there's still grace, there's still mercy, there's still time, would you believe? And the people were like, nope, nope, we don't want anything to do with that. And hear me say today, God would say, come to him, come to him. Judgment is coming, judgment is coming. Don't mistake God's slowness with weakness. It's patience. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, a thousand years is this one day to the Lord. This is one day. And then in verse 9 of chapter 3, it tells us that he is patient and he is waiting. Why? That none would perish. They would come to him and believe. God is patient waiting for you. And this isn't just something that Peter taught us. Throughout all the scripture, God has been patient, waiting for people to repent and to turn to him. Those of you that like Bible trivia, this is, you're going to get two Bible trivia answers that you can kind of store away for some point in your life. But God has shown his patience all throughout the Bible. There was a man named Enoch in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he was alive, and he was walking, and it says God took him up, and he was no more. Like, literally, the guy didn't have to die. God just took him on to heaven. Uh, good for him, right? Now, Enoch was a man that never died. There's your trivia question for number one, right? But he had a child, and it's interesting. His child's name was Methuselah. The book of Jude tells us that Enoch was actually a prophet, that Enoch spoke about the judgment of God, and that Enoch preached the grace that could be available in God. But he said that judgment is coming. He says when Methuselah dies, judgment will come. And Methuselah's name literally means when I die, judgment. Now, here's trivia question number two. Who's the oldest person to ever live in this world? Methuselah. It's not an accident. God is showing in that his great patience and kindness. That, yes, judgment is coming, but he even elongates Methuselah's life so that we would read it and be like, oh, my goodness, judgment is coming, but God is patient. God is not slow as some count slowness. No, he is a God who is waiting for more to trust in him and believe. And so, if you're not a believer here today, if you've never taken that step of faith, you need to realize two realities. One, judgment is coming. And that you will not get away with any of your sins. And the option that's placed before you is that you come to Christ and allow him to be judged in your place. Or you bear judgment for all of eternity in hell. And there's an invitation that Christ comes in his patience and in his mercy and his love. He says, come to me. And I will forgive you. For us as believers, it tells us that in verse 6 that we could continue to preach the gospel to those who are spiritually dead. They're spiritually dead. Why? Because there's a chance that they might live and be in the spirit the way God lives in the spirit. There's a chance they would believe. And so let us be faithful to endure whatever slander, whatever suffering that might come our way to proclaim the good news of Christ. That he takes the judgment for us so we don't have to take it ourselves. Lastly this morning, let's arm ourselves to love one another. 
Arm yourself to love others. In verse 8, it says, above all. Comes back to it again. He's mentioned it multiple times in the book of 1 Peter. Above all, keep loving earnestly. And I'm glad that he mentions this in verse 8. Because he's just talked about suffering and slander that we're going to go through. And then he says this. And I think the reason why he tells us to love on the heels of that is because anytime that you've been hurt, anytime that somebody speaks ill of you or slanders you, what's your default? Most of the time it's to be reclusive. I'm just going to turtle on in here and pull myself back from everything. I'm not going to love anybody out there. I'm just going to love myself really, really well. And Peter says, don't give in to that temptation. No, arm yourself to love others. And this word, um, earnestly, that you see in verse 8, we talked about it earlier on in 1 Peter, but it means to stretch, go to the point of exhaustion to love others. When you don't feel like doing it or when you're struggling, lean in and stretch yourself more. Don't turtle up. Don't recluse, but stretch yourself to love well. And then he mentions three ways to do that. This is how we love. We love through forgiveness, hospitality, and serving. And this is how we stretch ourselves to love well. Love forgives. At the end of verse 8, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. And once again, let's look back at Christ in his mind, right? Jesus is the living example of verse 8. A love covers a multitude of sins. God loved us so much that he came and died for us to cover the multitude of our sins. It was his love that drew him to this. And it's his love that will fuel us to do this as well. See, when we think about Christ's great love and sacrifice for us, it will help us to love others. When we think about how we have offended him, when others offend us, we can extend grace to them. You see, love will cover many small offenses and even large ones. We are ready to overlook sins of others when we realize that God has forgiven our sins. But where love is lacking, man, every word that is spoken is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and so conflicts abound. This is exactly what the enemy would want. This is his playground. Where we would refuse to forgive and not reflect Christ so no one sees Christ in us. They just see bitterness and anger. Although we would strive to forgive. We strive to forgive. But not only will love forgive, it'll do something else. Love will have that practice of hospitality. Verse 9 tells us to show hospitality. See, hospitality, this is where you open up your home and you would share your life with others. It's a, it's a love that includes other people instead of excludes. Instead of saying, well, we're just going to have our holy huddle, nobody else is in. That's not hospitality. That's not what God has called us to. God has welcomed us in, so we welcome others in. It's looking to Christ. Now, this is very important that we rightly understand hospitality. Hospitality is not about impressing people with our stuff. That's not what hospitality is. It's loving people with our stuff. It's not impressing other people with our stuff. It's loving people with our stuff. For many of you, you've had the temptation to think, well, once I have nicer things, then I'll be more hospitable. 
once my house looks nicer or the different things I have, once I have more money, then I'll be more hospitable and serve and be generous to other people. That's a lie. That's not what hospitality is. No, it's using the resources that God has given you to love others. Showing hospitality versus entertaining someone are two different things. Entertaining someone can be ultimately about you. Where people leave and they're like, man, did you see he had that and that and that? And you feel better about yourself because they walk away impressed because you entertain them well. Entertaining can be about me. But showing hospitality is leveraging whatever resources God has given you for the benefit of others and the glory of God. And that's what hospitality is. Now, I say this often and I'll continue to say it. The Bible is real and it knows our hearts because God is good like that. So at the end of verse 9, it tells us to serve with hospitality or show hospitality in what way? Without grumbling. Why? Because we all have the temptation in our heart to try to be uh, uh, hospitable, but then the day before we're like, oh gosh, I didn't clean the house enough. This doesn't look clean enough. Why did I invite them over this night? Why are we doing these things? And, And when you start to second guess yourself, you start to grumble in your heart. Being hospitable does not mean that I try to do this while secretly wishing that I didn't have to be hospitable. That's not what it's saying. And so God just calls our heart out. Do it without grumbling. Now, what do we arm ourselves with to keep our hearts from grumbling? What do we arm ourselves with to love in this kind of way? Well, Jesus helps us with this in Matthew chapter 25. This time he's talking about the day of judgment that's going to come for the righteous Not for eternal life or eternal death. No, if you're a believer in Christ, you have been saved for all eternity. But we still need to live lives that are holy before the Lord. And he talks about as people have lived holy lives before the Lord, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 25. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. These people, believers, will stand before Christ one day and he'll say, Good job. I love how hospitable you were to me and how you served me. And they're like, wait a second, we never served you. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. When you did to the least of these, you did unto me. And this is what we arm our mind with. So when that grumbling heart comes up and we're like, gosh, I don't want to do this. Like, no, I'm ultimately doing this for Christ. I'm not trying to entertain them. I'm trying to use my resources to love and to serve them. And this is what he's calling us to do. Let's arm our minds with his word and his truth so that we will be hospitable people welcoming others in. The last way he calls us to to stretch our love and to to arm ourselves to love well is to serve one another. You find that in verse 10. Now I love what he does in verse 10 because he says that we have been given a gift and that gift we just try to steward well. Now what that means is if you're a believer and you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes down and gives you at least one gift, maybe many, but not for yourself. For the body that you would love one another. That's why we got to do this in community. That's why isolation is not okay. That we would love one another with this. 
And God has given us this gift. And you know what a steward is? <laughs> Somebody that just takes care of something that someone else is. And God has given us this gift, and he's like, I want you to use this gift to love and to serve others. And so you have the, the gift of speaking. He says, then, then speak the things of God. Speak encouragement. Teach. Preach. But you just lean in and to love people that way. If it's not, maybe it's with your, with your hands that you would serve one another. And then at the, the end of verse 11, if you're thinking, there's no way that I can do this, you're in a great place because you can't do it. God does it through you. Look at the end of verse 11. Serve by the strength that God supplies. Did you catch that? The gift we steward is given to us from God to serve and love one another. The strength in order to be able to do it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It's all about him. Why? It's for his glory. It's for his glory. And you might hear these seemingly simple things. Forgive people, show hospitality, and serve other people. And you might think this morning, man, I like big. I like fast things. I want famous things. And these things, man, they sure seem small and slow and obscure. And yet what you'll find in God's economy is this. He's not looking for behaviors that make you famous or make you big. He's looking for behaviors that make him famous and make him big. And that's why Peter ends. To God be glory through Jesus Christ. For how long? Forever and ever. Amen. Church family, let us look at these gifts that God has given us and use it for his glory forever and ever. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so that's why we pray. That's why we come to you and ask that you would help us. And so, Lord, for, for the believer today, may we remember the truth that, Lord, you save, but you also sustain. Lord, you've given us gifts, but you've also given us the strength to use those. And so help us to arm our minds well to, to war against those temptations that would keep us from being obedient to you. May we remember your word. May we hide it well in our hearts that you would receive glory and dominion forever and ever. And Lord, I pray for the, the one in the room that haven't, hasn't taken that step of faith yet. They, they've heard about your patience today. They've heard about your kindness. They've heard your invitation to come and find forgiveness that they wouldn't have to bear judgment. God, I pray that they would take that step of faith today. They would take that step of faith, of boldness to, to pray and ask you to forgive them of those sins. Maybe it's some sins that we read about today. Maybe it's other sins of their heart. But Lord, you promised us that if we pray and confess our sins, that you would remove them as far as east is from the west. And so, Lord, we cling to not what I have said, but Lord, what you have said in your word. That if we confess, you'll forgive and you will save. So, Lord, let the lost be found today. Let the saved be strengthened to the glory of your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church family, let's stand now. Let's sing to the one who's worthy of all glory and power.